We'll begin reading at verse 14. Read through verse 23. Verses 14 through 23. Luke chapter 22. This is God's holy word. It's given to his people for our good. Let us attend to its reading. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And who is able, who is equipped to do such things, to to plumb and to mine the depths of these truths. Father, we ask for your blessing in this time. As we think, as we meditate on this truth, we ask that you would Open up our minds. We ask that you would uh, enliven souls and that you would soften hearts. Father, we ask that you would come and administer to us according to our needs, which are great and which are very many. Uh, we, we know not the needs of, of all who are gathered here, nor uh, can we even begin to, to, to fathom the many needs that we have. So we ask that you, that you would come and by your spirit that you would administer to to our needs, according to our needs. You are good and able uh, to do these things. Cleanse your servant now who speaks and desires to speak only your truth, that your name alone would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Those who minister can often feel uh, a a strong weight to to get things done for the kingdom and to kind of evaluate that which which they might be doing and, and think, am I doing a good enough job for the kingdom of God? And certainly, uh, ministers are to discharge their duties faithfully. They are to do it diligently. But that is so that they might be used of God. It is certainly uh, God who does the building. God who does the work of, of building his kingdom. There's a, a word that I just love when it comes to describing the work of the minister. And that is steward. The, the, the minister is to steward the mysteries of God, to, to steward the truth of God, and to merely uh, set the table, as it were, uh, before the people of God and before the world, uh, that they might find the bread of life and that they might feast on the bread of life. In other words, uh, the minister does not do uh, the saving. It is God who saves, as the Spirit enlivens dead hearts and applies the all-sufficient, 
all-saving work of Jesus Christ. God speaks through his word, and in so doing, the minister is called to die to self. To die to self. But as he dies to self, the the wonder is that through the power of of God's working, the life of Christ is created in the people of, of God. The Lord's Supper Communion, the sacrament of communion is a, a wonderful picture of this. The, the, the pastor, the minister is a steward. He sets the table and he, pass, he passes uh, the dishes. It is God who does the work. There's one fictional account of a pastor sort of realizing this as he's administering communion. And this comfort washes over him as he realizes his own helplessness. And uh, the the words go like this regarding this pastor. He read the admonition and the words of institution over the bread and the wine. The holy words restored his confidence. Here, nothing depended on himself. Here, he was simply a steward. A nameless link in the long succession of hands which Christ had used throughout the ages to distribute his gifts to men. For the first time, he felt it a relief rather than a compulsion to be nothing but a servant of the church without any contribution of his own and with no other glory to seek than to steward the holy heritage honorably. In other words, he is insufficient. But as a steward, administering something which in itself is sufficient, which in itself is powerful and working, the truth of God, the sacraments which he has given to his church, he can be used of God. The sufficiency of Christ, the all-sufficient work of our Lord, is front and center in the passion narrative of Luke. And as, as we think about it in the context of the Last Supper and the Passover, there's this, this other theme of participation, participating in the all-sufficient work of of Christ. That is front and center in this part of the Gospel of Luke. And then also, as we see uh, Passover, Last Supper, and Communion all together, we see the way in which the Lord works in His people to strengthen the communion bond between God and His people, that, that vital life that God's people are to live out according to the strength that God gives, that God gives uh, alone. So three, those three ideas then is what we'll think about today. The first is the, the idea of participation, participating in the all-sufficient work of Christ. And then, as I mentioned, the sufficiency of it, the sufficiency of the work of Christ. And then the communion bond that God creates uh, in his people and by which his people walk uh, for him and unto his glory. As uh, we saw last week, we're now in that part of the Gospel of Luke, the passion narrative, the story of the cross, the story of Jesus' own exodus, right? This is him setting people free, his liberation, setting people free from the bonds of sin and death, the story of the one who comes to save from sins, who came to seek and to save the lost. He did not come for the healthy, he came for the sick. He did not come for the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. He is indeed the great physician. He sets us free. Galatians chapter 1. The Lord has delivered us out of this present evil age. This is the story then of the exodus of Jesus as uh, we've been reminded of that since chapter 9. The transfiguration when Moses and Elijah 
are speaking about the exodus of the Lord. In last week's passage, we saw the leaders of Israel shockingly become a a type of Pharaoh figure in the story. Just as Pharaoh sought the life of Moses in Exodus chapter 2, so the leaders of Israel seek the life of Jesus. There's a greater enemy now at work, though. It says in all the way back in chapter 4 that Satan withdrew from Jesus until an opportune time, and he now comes back front and center to the story. He enters Judas so that this evil plot of crucifying the Son of God might come about. But of course, the great paradox of the work of Christ and the gospel is that the very thing that the enemies of Jesus want is that which will prove to be their undoing and their vanquishing. The Lord will conquer sin and death, even as it seems that he is conquered as he dies on the cross. All of this comes to us, of course, in this context of the Passover. And thus we will see that we're we're meant to think about this unfolding of the cross and of the sufferings of Jesus within that context, the context of Passover. And understanding it from that perspective is, of course, to understand it in terms of a vicarious sacrifice. That is, a sacrifice of substitution. Jesus goes to the cross as the substitute of another, in the place of another. And he does so within the context of Old Testament temple worship, Old Testament sacrifice. Take, for instance, uh, the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, where uh, the, the high priest would place his hands symbolically upon a goat. And that was the passing, the sins of all the people were being placed upon that goat. And then that goat was to be banished, and he, he wasn't sacrificed on the altar, banished outside of the camp, sent out, which is another symbolic way of of, uh, dying a substitutionary death. The Passover, of course, had lambs, spotless lambs, that would be sacrificed on the altar. And of course, that's rooted in in the, the first Passover in Egypt, where the blood of a spotless lamb was placed on the doorposts of a a house, and the, the wrath of God would pass over that house, and the firstborn in such houses were saved. This is the idea of substitution. This spotless lamb takes upon the sins of the people and cleanses them. And this is how the work of Christ is presented to us, not only in the Gospel of Luke, but all throughout the Scriptures. It's essential for for us to understand that Jesus goes to the cross as our sin substitute. Titus chapter 2 says that he gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, to buy us out of our bondage to our debt of sin, and to purify unto himself a people. So redemption and purification were defiled by sin, were washed clean by the blood of Christ. It's in Titus chapter 2. All kinds of symbols that we could pull from the Old Testament, from temple worship, and from the New to show that the biblical authors were very intent on making this point and to making us understand the cross in this way. So let us not pass by without making sure that we understand this is where our Savior is going to be offered up as a sacrifice for sin in order to satisfy the justice of God that, and, and the wrath of God that is rightfully upon all of our sins. The cross 
is ultimately to save us from God's wrath that is justly upon us. This does not mean that God does not love us before the cross. In fact, the Bible presents it to us that it was the love of God that sends Jesus to the cross. Right? This is how he showed his love in the book of 1 John. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him, through that uh, redemption. So we see the justice of God. We see the love and the mercy and the grace of God. We uphold both of these things. And we remember as Isaiah chapter 55 says, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So understand the, the, the givenness, the, the limited nature of being human. We're not going to fully understand. God always acts according to his character. He always acts according to his attributes. He is perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful and gracious. And he loves his people. He desires to save sinners. And that his name and his glory be exalted in the earth. So the, the cross it cannot be a stumbling block for us. It cannot be a proclamation of foolishness as it was to both the Greeks and the Jews in Jesus' day. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Rather, the cross is to fuel a lifetime of spiritual life, of gratitude, of service to God. Love so amazing, love so divine demands my soul and my life and my all. And of course, understanding it within this context of the Passover is what brings to our minds this idea of participation. The lambs that would be sacrificed on the altar for the Passover meal, the families would bring that meat of the Passover lamb back home and they would eat of those lambs. And that was the idea of participating in the benefits of the altar. You would eat that Passover meal, which included the, the, the meat from the Passover lamb. And that would be participating in the benefits that the altar gives. We saw last week Jesus desires earnestly to eat this Passover. To eat this Passover which he links to his suffering. So what, what's going on as Christ goes to the cross is the, this idea that the people... The people who follow in the train of Jesus and the follow, follow in the train of his representation are going to participate in the benefits of his work. And this, of course, brings us to realize things about the Lord's Supper. That the Lord's Supper is a, a sacrament wherein we are reminded that by faith, if we are to have salvation by faith, we need to participate in the benefits of Christ. We need to be a beneficiary of what Christ has done and what he has done through his death. Why it's such a special time uh, for the church to gather around the table of the Lord, to participate in the benefits of Christ. Why we treasure this time. It's why we place it before our covenant children and say, this is, this is what the Lord is preparing you for as you profess your faith in the midst of, of the church, that you are to join us at the table. We want you to join us here. Come and eat and remember Remember the work that has been done for sin. That this participation, just as would happen in the Passover meal, participating in the benefits of the altar. So we see that in the Lord's Supper, participating in the benefits of Christ. Secondly, uh, we see not only participation, but sufficiency. Sufficiency. This passage shows us that Christ's sacrifice is completely and utterly sufficient to reconcile us to God, to accomplish what we need for salvation. There are few feelings that are worse than thinking, whatever situation, whatever circumstance, thinking or realizing that what you have might not be enough. 
Whatever you have, whatever you're trying to accomplish, and whatever you're trying to achieve, what you have at your disposal is not enough. I remember driving through Arizona, helping my, uh, helping my uncle move to California. We kind of went southern route down through Oklahoma, New Mexico, Arizona. And uh, when you're driving through Arizona, sort of through the desert, there can sometimes be about 80 or 100 miles between gas stations and, and uh, gas station exits. And so you don't necessarily think about this. My uncle was, was uh, towing a car behind him, so he's burning a lot of gas. And we get about 20 miles past the last exit. He realizes because he's burning gas quicker than he normally does, he might not have enough fuel to get to the next gas station, which is about 80 miles up the road. So you're faced with the decision. Do you turn around, backtrack 20, 20 miles, lose some time, and then some time going back to, to regain that ground? Or do you just kind of go for it? You say, let's try and see if we can make it. Of course, we try to see if we can make it. We ran out of gas, ended up stranded somewhere. We had no clue where we were. It was about 36 hours that we were stranded. Had to wait, burned out the fuel pump in the car. Had to get that uh, change the, the very unsettling feeling thinking that what you have might not be enough but the point is this in Christ you have everything you need nothing of what you find in him will be insufficient to get you to your destination where you are trying to go to heaven itself to eternal life to the new creation to the new heavens in the new earth in Christ you have everything that you need and his sacrifice is sufficient. Think about one of the things that, that's so wonderful about this passage. In, as Luke presents the Last Supper, and as we're moving forward in redemptive history from the Passover to uh, the Lord's Supper, notice how Luke doesn't mention the meat from the Passover lamb. That was what people would eat in order to have that symbolic uh, participating in the benefits of the altar. But as Luke presents this to us, as they're celebrating this Passover together, it's conspicuously absent, the meat from the Passover lamb. And it is conspicuously absent because it is Christ's sacrifice. It is what he is about to do that will take away the need forever of a Passover lamb. He has come to fulfill all that we see in the Passover. He has come to be the once for all sacrifice, to be our Passover lamb, that as those who participate in his benefits will not need anything else. Even though uh, he has never committed any sin, therefore Jesus goes to be the sacrifice for sin and he does it willingly. Something fascinating about this wine fast that Jesus is going on. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until, uh, until the kingdom of God comes. When people were going through extremely hard times, you, know, you think of, of Job or something like that, where people are mourning and you know, tear their clothes, sometimes there would be people who would come and, and give them wine. As a, as a symbolic gesture, as a way to, to comfort them, as something that they could have as they went through their suffering. But if someone said, no, I don't want that, don't give that to me. In other words, they're saying, what I am going through, I need to endure because God's judgment has rightfully fallen upon me. That's one of the things that Jesus is doing. As he, as he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Because he is saying that what I am about to go through is good and it is right and it is just. The judgment of God is going to fall upon me because I am going as the substitute for sin. Another reason for this wine fast that Jesus undertakes is priests, when they were ministering at the altar, they, they would not drink wine. 
right? Does they, they were consecrated unto their service. Does not mean that wine in itself defiles, but there are all kinds of things you'd want to avoid in terms of drunkenness or the appearance of drunkenness. That wine is a, is a common thing, and they were uh, set apart for this holy ministry as they were ministering at the altar. Right? So they could not drink wine while they were doing their temple work. And that's, that's Jesus showing us that he is going to fulfill the work as the great high priest. To finish this work in the temple of God. To be our great high priest and our only sacrifice. He is prepared to go to the altar of the cross. To be a priest, but to be himself uh, the sacrifice. And as that great high priest, he offers up the sacrifice of himself. This life of righteousness, his willing and humble submission to the will of God uh, for sin. The the symbols of this passage and this meal are replete with reminders of sufficiency. There's one cup. One cup gets passed around. They all take a portion of that cup, but it is enough for all of them. There is one loaf. They all take and they eat of that one loaf, but it goes around. It's enough for all of them. This reminds us of what it says in Hebrews chapter 9, that, that Christ has entered into the holy places to put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. No need for repeated sacrifices anymore. There is no need for further work to be done. Tonight we're going to be considering Article 22 in our confession, which talks about justification, justification by faith, being reconciled to God. And it it says there, if we do not have, if we do not find in Christ everything that we need to be redeemed and reconciled to God, then Christ is only half a savior. But he is not half a savior. He is a good and a perfect savior. Savior, sufficient for us. So brothers and sisters, trust in the sufficiency of this work for you. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no powers, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. With what shall you come before the Lord? Will you come before the Lord with the the, the twigs and the leaves of your own righteousness? Or will it be with the perfect, all-sufficient work of your sin substitute? Will it be with the the all-sufficient work of the righteous Savior? There's an ancient uh, ministration for the sick and the dying uh, some believe composed by Anselm or, or of that period, so perhaps a thousand years old or more. And it goes something like this. Someone, some, someone sick and dying in a congregation, the minister was to go to them and, and to say these words. Do you believe that you cannot be saved but by the death of Christ? And the sick man would answer, yes. And then the minister would say to this sick man, go then, and while your soul lives in you, put all your confidence in this death alone. Place your trust in no other thing. Commit yourself completely to this death. Cover yourself completely with this alone. Throw yourself completely on this death. Wrap yourself completely in this death. And then it pictures this hypothetical judgment, which is not necessarily to say that this is how uh, an interaction with our God would go, but just to give comfort to the one who is sick and dying. And if God would judge you, say, Lord, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and your judgment. In other words, that Christ is sufficient to put away the righteous judgment of God. I will not contend or enter into judgment with you in any other way. 
And if he says that you are a sinner, say, I place the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between me and my sins, because it's sufficient to cover our sins. And if he says that you deserve damnation, say, Lord, I put the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between you and all my sins, and I offer his merits for my own, which I should have, but I do not. I should have these merits of righteousness. You created me. I'm your creature. I should have obeyed. I have not but I place the merits of Jesus Christ between me and all my sins. Place your trust in no other thing. With what shall you come before the Lord? With the twigs and the leaves of your own self-righteousness or with the perfect work, the all-sufficient work of the Savior. So we participate in this sacrifice of Christ. We rest in its sufficiency for us. And we see the way in which this supper The Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion, is given for us for the bond of life that we enjoy with our God and our Lord. The scriptures are are filled, replete with language that shows that God's people have this vital communion with their Lord. It's this active life that we are called to live. we, We saw it in Psalm 25, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Lead me in your truth, right? It's not a Show me your truth and I'll see it from afar and kind of think about it. No, it's lead me in your truth. Let me walk in your truth. Psalm 25 goes on to say that who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. That's the reformed language that we give to it. The, the, the idea of the covenant, this relationship, this communion bond that God calls us into. So Jesus says this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We know that this covenant idea is central to his thought here. And that reference to the new covenant references Jeremiah 31. We see the old covenant or the, the new covenant prophesied in the Old Testament, which was to be this realization, this presentation, this manifestation of the perfect work of the Messiah so that God's people would realize in a fuller way The complete forgiveness of sins. Now the forgiveness of sins, we see it all throughout scripture. God's mercy is as high as the heavens. Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and he is gracious. The end of the book of Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and iniquity? But God unfolds redemptive history so that God's people realize in this fuller way the Messiah, the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice for sin. So that we would know and realize and be able to live in light, in the light more and more of what the new covenant was prophesied to do. I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And so the Lord's Supper becomes this central part of the life that God's people are to live under the new covenant. Under this administration of the new covenant and the covenant of grace. The elements themselves tell us about how we are to understand the Lord's Supper in our Christian life, in that communion bond that we enjoy with our God. Bread was the staple of the ancient world. It's that which got people from one day to the next. It was daily sustenance. And thus bread is a symbol for life in that that time, in that part of the world. It was a symbol for life. In other words, the bread which Jesus gives to his disciples and which is the symbol of his body is the source of life for the Christian. Daily life, daily sustenance. You need that in order to have life 
for your souls. In scripture, the, the ultimate fulfillment is God has made us for himself. Our hearts will not find rest until they find their rest in him. It is finding rest in Christ. Outside of Christ, there is no spiritual life. As the Apostle Paul says, before Christ you were dead in your transgressions and sins. It is the life. Christ is the life of our souls. It's a symbol of life. Wine is a symbol of abundance and blessing and joy. The wine reminds us in, the, in communion, it reminds us that even though we walk through a sin-cursed world, even though we walk through a, through a world that is tainted by sin, filled with myriads of troubles and challenges, we have reason to rejoice. We have uh, reason to rejoice in what God has given to us. Psalm 116, verse 7, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. It reminds us that no matter the circumstances of our lives, we are the recipients of great and abundant blessing. Living life backwards, the Christian. We live life from, from the end back to make sense of the present. God has given you eternal life. He's given you life in Christ. He's given you abundance and blessing and joy. So bread, the source of life. Wine, the source of abundance and blessing and joy. Psalm 104, he gives us wine to gladden the heart of man. So the combination of bread and wine shows us that God gives us what we need in the day-to-day. He gives us the life and the sustenance that we need. He also gives us the ultimate joy and blessing that carries us forward to our ultimate home in the new heavens and the new earth. We see how this is God's action before it is ours. It is God ministering to us before we are bringing something to the Lord. It's a good consideration. It's a good caution to remember all of the admonitions, all of the warnings about being unworthy partakers and that they are not to come to the table, whether it be unbelievers or believers who are caught in in significant patterns of sin, forgetting the goodness of the Lord and forgetting what he has commanded us to do. But we also need to be careful to keep the spiritual blessing of the Lord's Supper. It's placed as a means of grace, as the place where God ministers to us and creates the life that he wants us to have. That that is central to all that we do. It's God's work in us before what we bring to God. This is, in fact, a, a, a central tenet of the Reformed tradition. Uh, The the Belgic Confession says that in the supper, the Spirit ministers to us. In the supper, spiritual life is sustained. And in the supper, our faith is reassured with these visible elements. It's important to remember that work of God in, uh, in his people. It's no wonder, then, that the early church celebrated the Lord's Supper every week. That the Reformers wanted to give this means of grace as a blessing to the people often and regularly. That as they trust in God, as they eat and drink in faith, they partake of this means of grace where the grace of God is visibly represented to us. It's a regular part of our Christian life. This is not the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, but the Reformed conviction of the Spirit's work, spiritual presence in the Lord's Supper that we see represented in all of our uh, confessional documents. That God uses this sacrament to bring us in to greater union with Christ, to bring us in to the realities that, uh, that he creates in us to live out a life that is pleasing to him, a life that glorifies him. So we read 
just as truly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink it with our mouths, by which our life is sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior. So this passage unfolds all of these things for us. It unfolds the sufficiency of the work of Christ. It unfolds participation in that all-sufficient work and how what Jesus is doing here in bringing redemptive history forward from Passover to the Last Supper to the Lord's Supper, that it is God's work in us that sustains us. So trust that all-sufficient work for you. Believe in what God is doing in your life, in this communion bond that you have with him as you trust in the work of Christ, as you are brought into the people of God, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion. We're also given admonition as we see uh, Judas, the reality of Judas, the one who betrays Jesus at the end. Jesus says, what is, what is destined for the Son of Man, that will happen. That is in the decree of God. It cannot be changed. And yet he says, but woe to the one who betrays, who betrays me. Woe to the one who has betrayed me. So we see uh, in this admonition against Judas, we see we're reminded of the language of Scripture that as we uh, uh, we are given this wonderful, glorious work of Christ, how shall anyone escape if they neglect so great a salvation? Love so amazing and so Divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Thus, brothers and sisters, harden not your hearts. Behold the perfect and sufficient sacrifice for sin. Come before the Lord with nothing but the righteousness of Christ and his shed blood for you. Throw all of your trust, uh, all of your faith upon this work and, and that death. Look upon him, feast upon him in faith. Let him be the bread of life for your souls. Look forward to the next time that we will gather around the table of the Lord for the life of our souls, where we testify to the one who gave himself as the sacrifice, the substitute for sin. Amen. Let's pray. So indeed, our great and gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give to us a sense of uh, your power, your might, the glory of your gospel, uh, that you would impress upon our hearts the meaning of, uh, of this passage, that your spirit would work through the words of scripture, and that you would build up your church for your honor and glory. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.